Welcome to Cows on the Planet podcast, lucky number 13. This series of podcasts will be exploring the science of beef production, beef, and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford, and I'm from the University of Lethbridge. I have been a beef researcher for longer than I care to admit, and before that on my family farm. My co-host is Dr. Tim McAllister, a principal scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, also in Lethbridge. Our topic today is can grazing cows prevent forest fires? Living as I do here on the treeless prairie, my personal experience with cows and trees has been limited. Other than some German relatives assuming that we were a bunch of savagely efficient clear cutters after seeing our farm as the treeless prairie concept was a bit foreign to them. But you, Tim, as a child of the parkland region, have more experience with trees. But is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to in our discussions today? Yeah, Kim, well, yeah, we cleared forests in our area. You know, we picked roots for about 20 years or so before they weren't running them through the combine. But yeah, the parkland region is uh, very high fertility for, for crop production and, and for beef production as well. And clearing the forest was part of uh, the process of, of taking advantage of that fertility. But I think now, you know, when we're looking at some of the impacts that we've had with like some of the forest fires we had last year and the smoke and can cows play a role in raising some of that understory and reducing some of the fuel sources? I know there's a big interest in California with the issues they've had with their wildfires about that possibility. But, you know, some of the questions are, are cows the best animals for doing that or should we be using other ruminants? I I think we should have a good discussion today. So to answer these questions, our guest today is Amanda Miller, a rangeland ecologist with Palouse Rangeland Consulting. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Amanda. Oh, thank you, Kim. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you. We'll start with a kind of an easier one to get you warmed up. What were some of the paths and forks along the road that led you to work with grazing cattle for fire suppression? Well, it's a it's a long and winding story. <laughs> so they usually I usually are. <laughs> so I did my undergrad at Thompson Rivers University in uh, natural resource science. And then I had the incredible opportunity to go over to the University of Alberta and do a master's degree with Dr. Edward Bork, who's one of the premier range scientists in Western North America, I'm going to say. Um, and the U of A has, a has an amazing range and pasture program or at least it did at the time. Um, And I think it still does. So anyway, that's where I did my master's degree. And then I had the good fortune of getting in with the government of Alberta, working first in rangeland policy, and then moving into range specialist positions, moving down to the windy southern Alberta prairies. And then following that, I bounced back to my home province of British Columbia. And I've been working largely with the BC Cattlemen's Association, who is the lead on this project, looking at, you know, using cattle to reduce wildfire risk. And yeah, it's been a great time and it's a wonderful project to be part of. I'm a co-researcher with Dr. Reg Newman, who is an incredible mentor. So where exactly are you based in British Columbia? Well, I'm based in a small town called Lumbee in the North Okanagan. Okay. (laughs) I've I've heard of it. (laughs) Yeah. What you do is you drive east from Vernon, and then once you start hearing banjos, you're in Lumbee. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, that that that's really helpful for finding finding things. But I do I, I love it. I love it. It's a great town. I'm just joking. So, man, as I mentioned, like a lot of North America was blanketed in smoke from forest fires uh, at various times last summer, and we're hearing a lot about there's a need to change how we manage forests and to try to reduce those fires and, and the impacts that they have. Both, you know, a number of people are impacted from a respiratory perspective as well. So, what are the main principles behind grazing cattle for fire suppression? Well, it's interesting. So I guess like to fully address that, we have to take a bit of a step back and think about how these ecosystems evolved. Because in interior British Columbia specifically, you know, these forested ecosystems evolved with disturbance as a regular factor in them. So there would be fire on a on a periodic basis throughout all these forested ecosystems. And it was both natural fires and those that were set and managed by First Nations in the province for, you know, many thousands of years. And then in addition to to fire as a disturbance factor, we also had grazing by ungulates. There weren't bison out here in British Columbia, but there were, you know, large herds of elk and other grazing ungulates. So disturbance is an actually a really important part of maintaining these ecosystems. So then when we move into, you know, the, the current day and age, we've been suppressing fire for about a hundred years, pretty effectively, I may say as well. So we have a lot of forest ingrowth. We have forests that are at a different, you know, that we're, we're seeing more homogenous forests, even aged, even species, you know, things that really carry fire a lot easier than if you had a nice mosaic of different ages and different species and all that kind of stuff. So, when we think about using grazing, integrating grazing into our forest management to reduce fire risk, it's to address some of those fine fuels that are often found in the wildland urban interface. You know, I'm in the Okanagan and a lot of these areas adjacent to communities like Kelowna and Vernon and Penticton were historically open grasslands. And now there's a lot more forest encroachment. And then you can have situations where your fine fuels, your grasses, they're very volatile. You can set fire to them super easily, especially when it's 40 degrees. And then that fire can carry up ladder fuels and turn into a big raging crown fire. So we're kind of trying to use cattle to address that fine fuel issue. So do the cattle require constant herding? And we know that cattle don't actively eat trees. They're not really browsers, they're grazers. So how do you stop them from just overgrazing the areas where there are grasses just because of the amount of food and feed that would be available? Well, so that's part of this project actually is determining what the stocking rates should be for targeted grazing for fuel mitigation within like the context of British Columbia's rangeland plant communities. And you're right, like the cattle generally go wherever they want. They often want to hang out near water. You know, they're just like people where when you have a dinner party, everyone's hanging out at the kitchen despite all your best efforts. So cattle have specific areas where they like to concentrate and, you know, make Maybe they have shade and water and all those things and they don't necessarily want to leave those areas. So, you know, to effectively target your grazing impact into the area where it would have the most benefit for fuel mitigation, you do need to have something like um, we've used electric fencing, um, temporary electric fencing to hold cattle into the areas where we want that grazing impact to be targeted. 
And then also we've used different distribution tools, water troughs that are specifically placed, as well as, you know, salt and mineral licks. And so that kind of acts to draw the animals into the areas where we want that grazing impact to be focused. So herding by promoting an environment that encourages them to enter into that region then basically. Exactly. And then some, of course, like the ranchers that are partnered on this project are excellent. They go out and check by quad on a regular basis and can move animals as well. So the way things are going, it looks like there's more fires rather than less. Mm -hmm. So can grazing only be used before a fire occurs? Like after a fire has been there can you go back and and graze like a couple of years later or is that going to be too hard on some of the plants that are trying to grow back oh that's a complex question there Kim. <laughs> that, those are the ones we like uh, we, we don't like the easy we like nasty questions that that make our guests sweat that's that's what we go for Oh, I'm just worried I'm going to say something wrong and then someone's going to email me and say, you're an idiot, <laughs> which they may we, not we, be wrong. We, we don't mind that either. So. <laughs> so, so to answer the first part of your question, this is something that has to be done prior to a fire coming through. So it's it's not, I mean, obviously we're grazing to reduce the fine fuel and then redu- subsequently reduce the risk of wildfire. So it has to happen before. It has to be like a, you know, a proactive approach. And one thing I've found with humans is we do not like being proactive. We're good at being reactive, but it's really hard to get people on board with being proactive. And it's interesting too, because so in BC, we had horrible fire seasons for 2017 and 2018. Really, really awful. You know, my own family was impacted. Uh, They've been... I mean, I've had both my father and and uncle and, and, you know, other members of my family evacuated because of fire evacuation orders over the last, you know, five years, at least three times, right? So it's something that is happening very frequently. So we had 2017, 2018 as these horrible fire years. 2019 and 2020 were nice and moist. There was almost no fires. And then, of course, people immediately forget what it's like to live in a burning inferno hellscape, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. And then 2021 comes along and we have the worst fire year on record here in BC. On my deck out here at my house, we were clocking the temperature of 47 degrees. It was a bad fire year. So people have basically forgotten how horrible it was to have the smoke so thick that you couldn't go outside and walk your dog for more than five minutes. So it's really difficult to get people to be proactive. Um, That kind of leads into my next question. If a fire is, if it's like one of those monster fires, is grazing even going to help to stop it? Like if it's a humongous one, like went through lit and just takes out the whole town, just is, is grazing helpful? to stop something like that? So yes and no. Yes, it's helpful to change fire behavior, like to reduce the intensity or change the direction. If it hits an area that has effectively been grazed and has the right, you know, composition. So that fire that rolled through Lytton was already an absolute inferno by the time it got there. If it had hit something like say, a, a you know, three quarter sections together of land that had been grazed to a low amount, it probably would have petered out, right? But it's not, grazing and addressing that sort of understory of the fine fuels is not going to 
stop a big crown fire. That's the thing is, is it's a proactive approach to land management. Oh, and then I did want to circle back and address your question about when can you go back in and regraze after a fire. Honestly, it just mostly depends on the climate and the severity of the fire that rolled through a bit more. If you get a very severe fire that burns down to the mineral soil, it's going to take a longer time to recover. And then if you have a not so intense fire, but you have three years of drought after it, it's going to take a longer time to recover than if you have something like a light fire and then you have perfect growing conditions for two seasons afterwards, you know. (laughs) That's the problem with ecology. The answer is always it depends and that's why no one likes us. (laughs) They like black (laughs) and white answers. (laughs) So another related issue, like we know forestry is really important to the BC economy and the Mm -hmm. Alberta economy as well. And I'm wondering, you know, I've, I've been down to Brazil and they pa- practice a civil pasture where they're grazing cattle while they're growing trees for for either the lumber industry or pulp and paper. Is there an opportunity to sort of establish those kinds of relationships in the forests that we have in BC and in Alberta? I think Potentially. So there are some civil pasture trials in British Columbia and then also in Alberta. So civil pasture is a little bit different than forested grazing. So civil pasture, it's intensively managed. Um, it's not an extensively managed system. And you're managing to maximize both your forestry production and like, you know, the production of trees and the production of forage and therefore, you know, your livestock. So it's more aimed towards intensive management and maximizing productivity on those sides. And then when we think about the context of, you know, the vast amount of grazing that occurs in both British Columbia and Alberta, it's more along the lines of intensive management where we're trying to have these overlapping land uses that are managed more by environmental means. So you're not doing intensive management. And so there is potentially, you know, like when we think about it from a wildfire risk reduction perspective, there's the potential that, you know, managed silvo pasture systems could really represent sort of these fuel breaks because you're not going to have a lot of that fine fuel buildup in the understory that you would have in more of these extensively managed systems. So it may have a place, but then you have to think about, are the ecosystems suitable for it? In BC, a lot of the areas that have this integration of forested uh, systems with grazing as a use are more these open forest grassland transition areas. And those systems are not necessarily well suited for intensive grazing. And then same in Alberta, a lot of the areas where you're looking at having uh, transition from say the prairies up to the boreal you know the central parkland tim where you're from and uh, the foothills those are areas where you're not necessarily going to want to intensively graze it may work better in the boreal where you have more tame pastures integrated with forested canopies and things like that but i wouldn't like i wouldn't want to put a bunch of cattle into a nice rough fescue douglas fir stand and just graze it to a golf course (laughs) because ecologically that's not the best use of the land 
I'm wondering, you, you made the comment earlier on about how the areas around Penticton, Kelowna, et cetera, where there was a lot more grassland, you know, when the forces have basically encroached into those areas and, and created a greater fire hazard. Is there an opportunity to use cattle after a forest fire then to prevent that re-encroachment from happening, you know, and maintain more of those grassland systems that would have been naturally there, you know, when they were being managed by the Indigenous people through fire suppression in the way they were doing it? I think they could be a complementary tool in that change uh, in the ecosystems. I would love to see more open grassland areas there. And also our First Nations partners would like to see that as well. Cattle, like as you said, and it might be controversial, they generally don't actually eat trees. (laughs) (laughs) They will, um, you know, in cut blocks and everything like that, they'll sometimes trample them accidentally. But There were studies done in BC where the animals have to be at 90% forage utilization to start eating conifer trees. And if you're at that, you got got bigger problems than cows eating trees at that point. (laughs) So (laughs) you have skinny, skinny cows. So they could be a potentially beneficial piece of that, but not the main driver. And also Barry Irving did work up at Kinsella Research Ranch through the University of Alberta and you have to pretty heavily graze the areas post-burn to have an impact on regeneration of trees. So it's it's a difficult one to say whether or not it would be effective as a piece of that. Maybe it leads into the next question Kim has. Yes, this is back in my previous life that um, I probably shouldn't be talking about on Cows on the Planet, but <laughs> I was a sheep and goat specialist. That's what I started out with. And back in those days, people were sending their sheep to BC to graze cut blocks and they were paid because their performance of the sheep wasn't as good on the cut blocks as if they'd stayed home on a good pasture. So how good is the performance of the cattle trying to do some of this? Like, should the cattle owners be paid for their cattle or um, what are your controversial thoughts on that? (laughs) Yeah, so I actually recall learning about the sheep coming out to BC to manage herbaceous regrowth in cut blocks. And it was really problematic because they would take them out of Alberta and put them in a cut block on like Vancouver Island and they would just tumble into, you know, off cliffs and whatever. So, you know, maybe they weren't in the best place there, those poor sheep. But to the point of your question... Do, how do the cattle do? The cattle actually do relatively well. Like when you put animals in an area where they're a little bit more confined, they do have more even utilization of the forage. So, you know, we didn't see any issues with gain based off of the trials that we've done over the last two years with targeted grazing. So that's beneficial. But then on to the point of whether or not I think there should be any compensation for this. I do think that there should be some form of compensation for ranchers that implement targeted grazing practices for the safety of communities because it's honestly, it's a lot of work for them. (laughs) You know, stringing up temporary electric fence is not the hugest deal, you know, when you're managing some cattle out on the prairies in Lethbridge and and around Lethbridge and out in uh, Alberta and stuff like that. But you know, some of the places where they had to put in this temporary fencing on our on our trials, on our study areas, it's pretty rugged terrain and it took them, you know, like a full 12 hour day to string five kilometers of, of electric temporary electric fence, you know, 12 hours of work with, you know, 10 people around. So I do think that that is 
something that's extra work that they have to do that they're not actually making any more money off of because the cattle aren't gaining any additional weight from these practices. It's purely just for community safety. And my next little question is, are cattle even the best species to be doing this grazing? Because back to my own family farm, it was hard to grow a tree. Like even with intensive work, watering, patting it on the head, it was really hard to get any tree even growing. And if you wanted your trees to die, you just let the cattle in on them. So just wondering, should it be goats or something? Like I've heard people saying, yeah, goats are perfect species to be grazing um, in some of these situations. But And sheep don't trample the trees as badly. So should we be doing multi-species grazing? Potentially, yeah. So, okay, this is a question that I get asked a lot because people love goats. They just love them and they hate cows. I always say, do you know why cows have horns? It's because they're the devil. Like (laughs) people do not like cows. So when you start thinking about practices like targeted grazing, you need to really match your animal to your target. So in this case, we're looking at reducing mainly grasses as the fine fuel issue. So cattle, they are what we call bulk feeders. And so they're going to have a grass dominated diet. That's what they're selecting for. They're not going to eat shrubs necessarily. They're not going to be selecting for browse as a practice. They're mainly just like bulk eating as much grass as they can. So they are actually the most suited for this practice of reducing fine fuels. And then in areas potentially where you have a big shrub component, maybe goats could be a good piece of that as well. Um, The areas that we're doing this targeted grazing study in, they're mainly just a grass-dominated understory with a bit of a forested overstory. So we don't have as much of that shrub component. And then because when you think about goats and sheep to an extent as well, they tend to, goats specifically, target um, forbs and shrubs as their primary sources of food. So if you're in an area like, I think that parts of California where they have, you know, those big chaparral areas, they use cattle to address the annual grasses because the goats aren't going to eat that. And then the goats will eat the shrubs because the cattle aren't going to eat the shrubs. So you can have those overlapping and complementary grazing practices on them. But yeah, people love goats so much. They're photogenic. They really are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so silver pasture has sort of been linked to if, if we're going to clear the forest and then we're going to grow trees in more of a cultivation type of approach that there's an opportunity for other species then to invade that area because you're not reaching the full climax condition of a, of a full climax forest. So can those plants pose a problem from a biodiversity perspective and could some of those be toxic and, and cause problems with toxicity in the cattle or other issues. Oh, absolutely. So anytime you have a disturbance in an ecosystem that results in some sort of bare soil, you've created a vector for invasive species to come on in. So targeted grazing, because you are sort of targeting and you're having more intensive uh, use across a specific area, you can create more bare soil and thereby create, you know, these areas where invasive species can pop up. 
And invasive species are obviously not something we want because they do have impacts on biodiversity and uh, not just from a plant perspective, but also from a wildlife perspective. If you turn something from this like nice, beautiful native grassland with all these forbs and there's bees and there's deer and everyone's happy and frolicking, and then you turn it into something that's, you know, just a monoculture of like curly cup gumweed and, you know, bare soil, then you're definitely going to have some negative impacts on your ecosystem health. And then all the animals that depend on those areas, they just can't use it anymore. I think that's probably the easiest way to describe it. It's bad. Has toxicity been an issue for any of those, like in terms of cattle being poisoned if they consume some of those plants? Or, Well, it depends on the plants that come in, that invade an area. So we've been lucky on our study sites not to have issues with toxicity. Although it was interesting, this past summer we did have, on one of our sites, the animals started eating all the silky lupin, which... Apparently has and I didn't actually know this. It has Alkaloids. toxicity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I, I did a study on sweet white lupin feeding it to sheep thirty years ago. So yeah, I know all about alkaloids and lupins. Yeah, and then the issue that came out of it was that apparently it can really impact fetal development mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. in cattle, and it's far more toxic to sheep because sheep just want to die all the time. It doesn't matter what you do. They're going to fall off a cliff. They're going to get stuck in a blackberry patch. They're going to eat something. They're like the rabbits of the ungulate world. They just want to go. But yeah, so the lupin apparently impacts fetal development of calves in utero. um, But luckily, the timing of the grazing where they were eating all that silky lupin, they weren't at the point in their gestation where it would be a problem. So we got lucky, but I was sweating. I was sweating when I was talking to the rancher about it. And he was like, oh, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I think you made a good point that the cows, if they're in these ecosystems, are sharing it with wildlife, like the ungulates as well. But there's also predators there too, like grizzly bears and mountain lions and potentially wolves, I guess. Like what kind of interactions do you see there? Has that been a problem at all in these approaches of integrating cattle into these ecosystems? Well, so our work is focused on the wildland urban interface. And the one thing about predators is they certainly want nothing to do with people. So that has not actually been an issue that we've had to deal with because these are honestly, you know, I at our Cranbrook site, it's it's tough to find a place. It's tough to find somewhere where you have privacy in case you need to go to the washroom because there's houses literally right there. So, you know, that's been a hurdle because you need the community buy-in and you're spending a lot of time on that piece. But it's been beneficial from the perspective that we don't have to worry about cattle being run through our temporary electric fences or anything because the predators give that area wide berth. Just a bit of comment on watering your cattle. Like you you talked about cattle liking to hang out by the water. Is that like a lot more electric fencing required to keep them away from the streams and surface water and you have to haul water to the cattle? then like that sounds a bit expensive then another cost to to doing this yeah no that could become a big issue of course um so we've again with these study areas had the good luck that they are right next to community infrastructure so we've been able to put in water troughs on one site in particular we actually watered out of someone's acreage and they loved having the cows come and visit them all the time you know at the water trough just across their fence so water could become a very expensive piece if you are hauling it, but we're 
relatively lucky in these areas that we have good water sources and then we have the ability to put in water developments like troughs. And then we've actually, as part of this project, focused on fencing out some critical riparian areas. And, you know, then you create sort of one access point where cattle are able to water out of it rather than the whole area around the wetland. So that's been beneficial to all the animals that are utilizing those riparian areas. So Amanda, I'm just wondering, like, to what extent the forestry sector is involved in in some of this work? Like, do they see this as a positive thing from their perspective in terms of an approach to fire suppression? And and you mentioned that you spent a lot of time getting all the people, you know, on board, the foresters, local different levels of government, livestock producers, environmentalists, general public to to start to bring some of these concepts forward as, as possibilities of dealing with fire suppression. So, so do you see this expanding in the future based on your experience so far? And, or are they just going to be used in very localized areas under special circumstances? No, I see this definitely expanding as a land use practice in interior British Columbia. So from the forestry perspective, they've been involved primarily because these areas where we're looking at integrating targeted grazing, they're the same areas where forestry workers and, you know, the province are looking at doing wildfire risk reduction work on the overstory. So where this comes from really is that they would go in and they would thin the trees and reduce ladder fuels, you know, do a lot of great work to reduce the potential of having those really devastating crown fires roll through. You know, you're thinning the canopy and all those things. But a side effect of that is that then you've created an open overstory. So you have a lot more light resources and then you just get a huge flush of grass, you know, herbaceous material in the understory. And then that creates that additional, you know, you're increasing your fine fuels and they're a lot more volatile. So it is integrated with some of the forestry practices and a lot of the wildfire risk reduction work going on in the province now speaks to the fine fuel issue that comes after you thin the overstory. And so it's definitely on their mind and specifically in Cranbrook, the East Kootenai area and the Okanagan area, dealing with the fine fuels through some way has been on their radar. And we just think that way can be cows because they're already there. (laughs) And then they make beef. (laughs) Well, thank you, Amanda. This has been really interesting. I can't say I knew lots about cows and trees really before this, but learned a lot. So thank you very much for being our guest. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Tim, we've heard about the potential for well-managed grazing to reduce fuel for fires and that silvopasture can be a win-win situation if managed properly. But it's not all totally easy when it comes to grazing cattle in trees. What are your take-home points from what Amanda had to say? Yeah, well, I think Amanda did a nice job of outlining how cattle can play a role in reducing that fine fuel that she described, uh, that component which is very readily combustible and often is the first stage in where we get into these major crown fires, of which point the cattle are not going to be able to control those kinds of fires. We, we need to prevent those from happening in the first place. So I think that was a, a very interesting component. I think it was also interesting to hear how she mentioned that there was a lot of fire suppression in the past through Indigenous lifestyle and the practices that they had and and whether or not cattle could play a role in 
expanding some of those grassland areas that were adjacent to those forests before that fire suppression. We had forest encroachment, particularly going near to where the urban areas are, where, where fire can pose a real big risk in terms of getting into cities and some of the experiences like Kelowna's had in the past. But she also indicated that it's not easy. Some of the terrain is quite difficult and the fencing can be challenging and, and making sure the animals are in the right place and providing the correct grazing pressure on that environment so as to suppress the risk of fire, but not at the expense of damaging biodiversity. So I think that's part of what her research project is working on right now. So it looks like there's great potential. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you have comments about the podcast or suggestions about future podcasts, please visit our Facebook page, Cows on the Planet. We can also be reached by Instagram, at cows on the planet or Twitter at planet underscore cows. Our next podcast will be Cows in Ghana, Challenges and Opportunity. And we'll feature Dr. Adele Wessa, Associate Professor of Ruminant Nutrition at the University of Development Studies in Tamale, Ghana. We need to thank our production team. Carter Potts is our engineer and theme music developer. Allison McNaughton and Uvi Abascaria are working on podcast distribution and trying to entice more people to listen. And now for some words from our sponsors, which are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef, and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations. We are just looking for the honest opinions of other scientists, farmers, or experts in any of the areas we are discussing. 